0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. I've got a weird story for you this morning really awkward. Uh, It's not an awkward story, but it's just a strange story. In 1919 in Boston, Massachusetts, a 12,000 ton tank of molasses exploded. And it exploded in a northern suburb of Boston there. And it sent a wave of hot molasses uh, down the streets of this neighborhood. The wave was 20 feet tall and moving at 35 miles per hour pretty crazy it led to all sorts of reform on on how we as a nation uh control molasses uh I'm telling you, it's just a weird story I looked it up it is true and it's just uh it led to all this reform and and these rules and these regulations on how we keep molasses because in that wave of syrup 21 people died and 100 people were injured can you imagine that can you think about that There is a true story that in our country 21 people died from syrup syrup it's crazy here's another interesting fact about the story most of the people nearly everybody who died died running from the molasses they saw the molasses coming they saw the wave 35 miles per hour and they tried to outrun it they got stuck in it and eventually drowned in the molasses. All of the people who survived, nearly everyone who survived, stayed in their houses. They heard the explosion, they went back in, or they just stayed where they were, and that is actually what saved them. It is an interesting concept that the people who ran from the danger died, and the people who stayed survived. It's a natural reaction. I don't know how you would respond to a 20 foot wave of molasses. Think about it for a second. Just think of it, that's a reality that happened. I do not know how you would respond, but I guarantee you I would run. I promise you that I would try to outrun it. It's just, it's a natural flight instinct to uh, a fright like that. And even though you've probably never been threatened with syrup, you have all sorts of fears that you run from, right? All sorts of things in your lives come up and, 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 you, and you just feel like you're gonna run. Like commitment, there's people who are afraid of commitment. And so they run from partner to partner, from, from friend to friend, never wanting to make too much of a commitment, always being alone. There are people who are afraid of failure. So they run from the task and they end up failing anyways. There are people who are afraid of disappointing, maybe a parent or a boss or some sort of mentor. And so the, um, the running from the starting, they just avoid starting, they freeze. And in the end, they never reach their full potential. There are people that are afraid of rejection. So they run away from people, push people away so that they will reject them before they are rejected. They'll cut them out, they'll push them off to the side. All of these fears that well up within us and cause us to think about instantly without really thinking about it, I got to get out of here. You ever feel that way? Anybody ever feel that way? You start to be afraid and your natural reaction is I got to go. I got to get out of this. I've got to get out of this situation. You see what I'm saying is being afraid is one thing, but responding without thinking is deadly. If you just run from your fear, there are many times you will run into something much more Dangerous. You're running away from something that you're scared of. You'll run towards something that you should be afraid of. I want to talk about our most common emotion this morning, that being fear. I want to talk about how to respond to it because here's what I believe. Here's the reality. I think that the shelter for your soul is a person, not a place. I think that safety is found in relation and not location. Let me say that again. I think that safety is found in relation and not location. The place that you are running toward may be the deadliest place if you are running from the person that you should be with. Let's pray together and then I'm going to read a piece of Jeremiah 42 and then we'll talk about it. God, thank you for the songs. Thank you for singing together and and lifting up your name and what it is that you have done, that you're victorious, that you win and that, we, and that you are victorious on our behalf. God, I, I pray today as we open our minds and our hearts this text that we would be able to silence the fears that we walked in here with. Just for the next half hour or so, we'd be able to think, we'd be able to listen, we'd be able to hear what your word says in spite of all of the apprehensions and the anxiety and the internal noise that we, that we brought into the room. So God... Encourage us, encourage us to lean into you and to trust you, to not be afraid of the monsters and to know that you will rebuild, replant, and relent. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. So Jeremiah 42 is the text to be at. So if, you, if you're new to a Bible, it looks like it's about halfway, maybe a little to the right. You'll find Jeremiah at the, chop, uh, at the top of the page and you look for the big 42. If you do not have a Bible after the service, stop by the, the desk where I will be there. I have some for you. And we've been giving away uh, you know, dozens of those every week. I'd love to give you a Bible. Same one that I'm reading from right here. I'd love to give you one of them. If you don't have one, um, feel no shame in that. It's not like, uh, like you showed up uh, with something that you, you showed up, you didn't have what you needed. I've got it for you. I will give it to you, all right? Jeremiah chapter 42. In order for us to understand what's going on in 42, I need to tell you the context, but the context is a little bit confusing. There's all sorts of names and places that we have not been before. And so I'm gonna try my best to tell you the story. And I hope that I do a good job at it. Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king. Nebuchadnezzar has already sacked Judah. Judah is the nation, sort of the area that these people are living in. And part of what he did, and when, whenever he took over a country, was he would take some of the, the best, the brightest, the best looking people and he would move them around to the other countries that he uh, has already conquered and what he would do is he would put up a puppet governor like just a person there that just sort of needs to make sure that everybody's doing what nebuchadnezzar said to do and and he did uh he, he put up this governor his name's hard to say it starts with g so it's governor g all right so governor g is there and he's and he's sort of in an area called mitzvah at the city at the, at the community, at this, uh, it's sort of a temple, a religious site called Mitzpah. That's where Governor G is hanging out. He's got a couple of the Babylonian soldiers with him. All of a sudden, a dude named Ishmael, not the famous Ishmael in the Bible, a different Ishmael, a less famous Ishmael, uh, decides he doesn't like Governor G and he goes and kills Governor G and the Babylonian uh, soldiers. So it's, it's, a, it's a bold move. He does that and then he tricks these 70 people who are coming there to do some religious stuff. He tricks them, kills 60 of them, takes 10 of them captive because they say they have some food for him. So he takes those 10 captive and other people in Mitzvah and he goes on the land, he runs, right? So Ishmael, some captives, a bunch of dead people, that's what's going on. Another guy named Johanan decides that that ain't right. So he goes and chases down Ishmael. He's trying to kill Ishmael, but he doesn't catch him. But he does free all the people. And Ishmael runs to another uh, neighboring community called, or neighboring nation called Amon. Now, here's the story that's set up. Uh, The the, the guy that saved everybody, what did I say? His name was Johanan. Johanan and the captives are all scared now. They're all afraid. They're afraid that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be mad that Governor G was killed. He's going to come back and he's going to start killing everybody. He's already done some of that. He's already tore up most of the city, tore up most of the nation. He's a bad dude. He's evil. He's a dictator. He's not somebody that you want to mess with. And they just killed his governor. And so when he comes back, they're going to be in pain. So listen to what I'm saying here is they're in the midst of a situation in which they're scared, in which they're alone, in which they have no protection. Their government has failed. Their economy has failed. Their relationships are gone. Everything's upset. Nothing is stable and everything in them is telling them we gotta go we need to run so they decide they're gonna run to Egypt all right so they're here they're gonna run down to Egypt before this guy comes over here and gets them again that's what they decide they are scared and they're gonna run and what I gotta say at this point is they got a good reason to be afraid this is a real monster this is a real bad guy they've got a good reason to be afraid and on their way out On their way running to Egypt, they stopped Jeremiah and they asked Jeremiah, hey, will you pray? Will you pray to your God and make sure that we're doing the right thing? We're scared, we need some guidance. And in verse five and six of chapter 42, they say to Jeremiah, everything that your God tells us to do, we will do this. Every single thing he tells us to do, we're gonna do it. And so Jeremiah prays and after 10 days, Jeremiah comes back with a word from God. That's what we're gonna read. And it is in nine through 12. So let me read this to you. This is what the Bible says. He said to them, Jeremiah says to them, this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to bring your petition before him. He says, this is what God says. I asked him what you told me to ask him. And this is what God says in verse 10. If you will indeed stay in the land, then I will rebuild and not demolish you. And I will plant and not uproot you. Because I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought on you, Don't be afraid, the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Don't be afraid of him. This is the Lord's declaration because I am with you to save you and rescue you from him. I will grant you compassion and he will have compassion on you and allow you to return to your own soil. This is the message that Jeremiah brings back to these people in their fear, in their valid fear. God tells Jeremiah two things. He gives them some instruction, and he makes a promise. Often the way that the Bible records things is um, it's a sandwich. So I'll point that out to you. At the beginning of 10 is some instruction, and in 11 is some instruction, and right in the middle is some promises. So it's an instruction. Sandwich or a promise. I guess it would be a promise sandwich with instruction bread. So let's look at the bread. Let's look at the instruction first. This is what God tells them to do. It's a two-part instructions. The first part there is to stay. If you will indeed stay in the land. God wants them to stay. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we gotta understand. God's not just telling them about their location. He's not saying, I don't want you to go over there. I want you to stay right here. The point is that God is saying, I want you to trust in me stay stay right there now let me point out what that means if they stay according to their perspective according to their logic they're going to die Nebuchadnezzar's coming this way he's mean he's a bad dude he's going to come and he's going to be upset and if we stay here we are dead if we go over there then maybe we're alive are they having a conversation (laughs) sounded like two people were talking two kids Um, which I'll get to that in a minute I love kids So if we stay here, we'll die. If we go to Egypt, then uh, we will live. We can go that way and it makes sense. We're going to go off that way. If we stay here, this is this is deadly. God says, stay. There's another thing is their bad guy, their bad king is going to come and hurt us. Maybe we can get our own king and they got a king over there. His name's Pharaoh. We'll get Pharaoh and he will protect us. We will fight fire with fire. So we can have this authority in our lives. We can have this person in our lives that will protect us. We can go over to that place and we can hide. Also, our land is destroyed. This place is bad. There's ruins. There's no food. There's nothing to do here. If we go to Egypt, they're still strong. They still got fortress and walls and armies so we can go over there everything in human logic says it is smart to outrun our fear and go to Egypt and God says no listen you need to stay you need to trust me don't trust that Pharaoh you need to trust me don't trust those walls you need to trust me don't trust that economy you need to trust me don't trust that enemy you need to trust me don't trust that army you need to stay trust me the same thing that jesus is going to talk about in john chapter 15 jesus goes on and on and on talking about this idea of remain make sure that you remain in me apart from me you can't do anything this is what jesus says john chapter 15 verse 5 through 7 i'll just read 5 and 7 i am the vine and you are the branches the one who remains the one who stays the one who's here with me and i with him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me Verse seven, if you stay, remain in me, and my words stay in you, ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. See, the emphasis all throughout the Bible is that safety is not in a location, it's in a relation. It's not where you go, it's who you're standing with. All the time, the Jews are trying to run to Egypt. All the time, they're afraid of this, and they run over there, and the whole time, God is telling them again and again and again, I am with you. I am with you. That's the whole point of the temple. That's the whole point of the tabernacle. That's the whole point of Jesus in the flesh walking with the people. I am with you. Safety is in the relation, not in the location. You need to stay. But not only does he tell them to stay, not only does he tell them to trust God, but also don't be afraid. Stay here in... Don't be afraid. In fact, in verse 11, that's the bottom side, the, the bottom piece of bread. He says it three times. He uses the word three times. This is how he says it. He says, Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you fear. Don't be afraid of him. This doesn't make any more logical human sense than the stay thing. You're telling us to stay where it is dangerous, and then you're saying, Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid. There's there's a couple of things that are going on here. Uh, Because of the way that it's worded here, it's almost like God is saying, don't emote the emotion that you're emoting. He wants them to hear the emotion that they are feeling. Be careful how you respond to the fear that you are feeling. That's what God's trying to communicate to them. Notice that God is not saying that the thing that is coming isn't scary. Christianity has never pretended like the thing that you deal with is not scary. Look, it is scary to get fired. It is scary to be rejected. It is scary to be isolated. It's scary to get cancer. It's scary to be cut. It's scary to be alone. It's scary to be uh, pushed out and rejected and exiled and outside of the group. It's scary. It's scary to start something new. All of that's scary. God doesn't say that the monster isn't scary. What God is telling you is don't be afraid of the monster. It's mean, it's scary. But you stand there and don't be afraid. God wants us to understand that it is normal. It is natural to fear. It is different. It is godly to respond in fear in a certain way. Don't respond in fear fear. This is countercultural. This is different than everything that our world is telling us. What our world says is you respond to the way that you feel. So if you feel frustrated and you lash out at somebody, that's fine. You were frustrated. If you are angry and you, and you reject somebody or you're mean to somebody, that's fine. You were angry. If you're feeling alone or scared and you start treating somebody poorly because of the feelings that you're feeling, that's fine. It's justified. If you want it, you go get it. Right? That's what our culture says. That's what our world says. That's what our, 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 um, our churches have started to feel. That's what Christians have started to act like. Like we are governed by our emotions. Sadly, a lot of churches are, are, are working really hard to, to, to stoke emotion, to, to build on emotion. And listen, emotions are, they're, they're fine signals, but they're bad guides. They tell us something about what's going on, but they're not in charge. What God is saying in this text, in the Old Testament text, the same thing that he says in the New Testament, same thing that I am telling you is, you're in control of your emotions. You can't help what you feel, but you can help how you respond. In fact, let me go a step further. You can't help what you feel, but you are responsible for how you respond. You're responsible for that. What God says three times, don't emote the emotions that you're emoting. You stand there. You trust me. And don't be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. I can almost hear God saying it like that, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, don't be afraid of that guy. I was there when he was born. Don't be afraid of him. Don't respond that way. Second Timothy 1.7, Here's what God, this verse has been running through my mind for over a year now. Second Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but fear, emotion, God has not given us something that is controlled by emotion. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. You can be afraid, but how you respond is up to us. So what God's instruction to them in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their valid, justifiable fear is this. You lean into me, you trust me, and don't be afraid of the monsters. And I promise. See, here's the cool thing about the way God talks. God never says, just do what I say and hush. God's never just like, here, do this and go do this, and I don't really care. That's not how God works. God always communicates this way. You do this, and I promise. Here's what you need to do, and I promise. They are connected. Uh, But here's a theological point that we really need to make sure. They're not contingent. They're connected, but they're not contingent. Meaning this, God always tells us, this is how you honor me. This is how you do what you're supposed to do as a follower of God. This is how you obey. And this is what I do. I promise these things. But the beauty about God's promises are, you can fail at your side, but he still keeps his word. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. God makes promises knowing you will fail at them. That's the beauty of it. That's why, that's why we do obey. Because he is so faithful. That's why we know that if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can mess up, and you probably will, and you will definitely mess up. You're not probably, you're going to mess up. And in the end, he is faithful and just to forgive us. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Not because of something that you have done, but because of the promises that he keeps. God keeps his word. And when he said, I will save you, he meant it. So he says, you Stay, lean in, trust, don't be afraid. And here's what I'll do. They're all in verse 11. Verse 11 says, and I will rebuild and not demolish and I will plant and not uproot because I relent. I will rebuild, I will plant, or like I like to say, uh, replant. I like R-E words. I will rebuild, I will replant, I will relent. That's what God says, I will rebuild. That speaks to the idea that something has been broken. It's been knocked down. It's been torn up God says I'll rebuild that but even though they're standing in the midst of their broken community and the broken walls what God is saying is I will rebuild look at verse 11 what does he say there I will rebuild and not tear down (coughs) you I'm gonna rebuild you see God rebuilds people he's not as worried about the institution and the structures as we are he's much more worried about the people I will rebuild you. Some of you walk in here and you are torn down by unreasonable expectations that people have put on you. They expected you to perform in a certain way that you can't humanly perform it. They expected you to know things that they didn't tell you. And they were upset when you didn't act the way that they thought that you were gonna act. They have put expectations on you to the point that you just can't keep walking. And at first you fought it, at first you objected, but at some point you just look up and you give up. You're no longer the person that you brought into this relationship because the expectations are something that no human can possibly meet. And what I gotta tell you is, friend, God can rebuild you. God will rebuild you. He does that with individuals, he does that with families. Some of us have had the sad reality of holding our families in our hands and watching them just crumble like some sort of chocolate shell, sweet, but so fragile. Falls apart, you can't put it back together. And now there's been years of words said, years of rejection, years of events missed on purpose and, and subversive social media posts and all sorts of painful things have been said and done and not done. And you can't put it back. But God can rebuild families. That's what God does. God rebuilds daddies and mamas He rebuilds siblings and children and sons and daughters. God can rebuild those things. You can't, you tried, but God can't. See, God is not in the business of throwing people away. He's in the hobby, in the work. He's passionate about it, about rebuilding people. Individuals and families and communities and colleges and churches, that's what God does. He rebuilds these people. God says, I will rebuild. But there's some of us, maybe a little bit more cynical that look at that and go, pfft. I mean, you can rebuild it all you want. It's just going to fall down again. Right? You ever feel that way? You go through a really hard time and then some relationship comes into your life and you feel more like a human. You feel like a person, like somebody cares about you, they love you, and they pour into you and then they stab you in the back. You can rebuild all you want, God, but it's just going to fall down. You can stack it all back up if you want to, God, but this world is messed up. It's all stacked against me. That's why that next promise is so inspiring. That's why that next promise is so good. He says, I will rebuild you and I will replant you. See, part of the problem, part of the reason that we fall apart all the time is because we are built on the wrong foundation. We're built on the sand. And God says, I'm going to rebuild you, but I'm going to rebuild it right this time. We build relationships based on attraction or based on some sort of common interest. And God says, that's not going to last. It's never going to last. Your looks change. Your interests change. I'm going to root you into something that is eternal. We build community. Oftentimes in this country, the common factor of building a community is based on who we hate. People hate the other team more than they love their own team. They'll get together and just talk trash about so-and-so. They'll get together and hate on such-and-such. They'll get together and critique and and, and complain. They'll do all this kind of stuff. And that sort of community does not ever last. God builds on things that are rooted, things that are strong. God says, I will re-root you. That's why it won't fall apart this time. I'm gonna build it and I'm gonna build it right. In Colossians 2, 6, through 7, so then just as you have, been, have received Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him. Continue to walk with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. That's what it says. Walk in him. Stay with Jesus. Trust Jesus being rooted, built up, and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what the New Testament says. You'll be rebuilt. You'll be Replanted, and then he says, and I will relent. Here's one of the hardest things. If you're new to Christianity, if you're new to faith in God and understanding the Bible, here's one of the hardest principles to understand right at the beginning, but it makes so much sense once you do see it God is the source of the judgment. God is the source of the judgment. You see, over and over, these people in Mitzvah, in Israel, in Judah, over and over they rejected God. Over and over they went to false gods. Over and over they lived their own lives. Over and over they pretended that like they were the king, they were the queen. Over and over they lived like they wanted to live. And God said, you keep doing that. You're breaking the order, you keep doing that. You're not living the way that, that you were created to be. You keep doing that. It's gonna end up in pain and hurt isolation, all those things that you keep running from, you're actually running toward them. I'm the answer. You keep running away from me and it's going to hurt you. And so in his compassion, in his love, he judges them. He punishes them. He purges them. He, he inflicts pain. So that they will reap the consequences of their own actions, not to hurt them, but to show them that that hurts. It's like, dis- it's like a parent disciplining the child that they love. It's not to hurt them, it's so they don't get hurt. That's what God does and God in this passage says, if you lean, if you trust me, listen, I've been saying it since the beginning. If you trust me and you're not afraid of them, then I will relent, I will show you grace. It's not just that he says relent, listen to these words. He says, because I am with you to save you and rescue you from him and I will grant you compassion. What an amazing phrase. What a verse worth memorizing, listen. God says, I am with you to save you. Such a powerful verse. I want y'all to say that out loud. I'm going to say it and then you say it. I am with you to save you. you So next time you're afraid, next time you're scared, next time everything in you wants to run, you need to hear God saying the same words. He's saying it. He's looking at you. He knows your name and he says, I am with you to save you. I'm not here just to witness this thing. I'm not here just to see how it goes. I'm not with you like I'm behind you, good luck. Because like, I am with you to save you and I will rescue you from him and I will rescue you from sin and I will rescue you from isolation and I will rescue you from that pain and I will rescue you from those feelings and I will rescue you from that absolute torment that it is to live a life apart from Christ. I am with you to save you and I will rescue you and I will show you compassion. Look, that's the gospel message and it's been the message all the way throughout this life. We are afraid. You live your life afraid. You look tough. You look strong. You look like you have it all together and we envy how well you are managing your life. But the reality is, and you know that deep down in your mind, deep down in your heart, you are terrified that everything's just gonna go falling apart and you live your whole life running from what you're afraid of. And Jesus, with arms wide open, so compassionate says, hey, stay here with me. Don't be afraid. I am with you to save you. I will save you from them and I will show you compassion. The question is whether or not you're gonna trust in that, whether or not you're gonna obey. I really wish I could stand up here and tell y'all that, Johanan and all those people, they heard this message, they repented, they praised God, they wrote songs and built churches. I wish I could tell you that, but they didn't, they didn't. They heard what God said and they went to Egypt and they died in Egypt. They were killed in Egypt because safety wasn't in the location, it was in the relation. Safety wasn't in a place, it was in a person and they went the wrong way. So Christ is a haven for your heart, a shelter for your soul. Safety is found in a person, not in a place, a relation, not a location. So let me ask you this, and this is the question that I wanna ask you. When you get scared, and you're going to, and it's gonna well up like a wave, it's gonna crash into you, nobody wakes up and thinks Today's the day that I'm afraid. Today's the day that I run out on this relationship. Today's the day that I quit this job prematurely. Today's the day that I say the things because I'm afraid. When you're afraid, answer this question. (laughs) What do you want to run to? When you're afraid, to where do you want to run? Pay attention. Listen. You got to focus. When you're afraid, where do you wanna run? Do you wanna to run towards a toxic relationship? Do you wanna to run towards some sort of substance? Do you run to run towards some sort of bad habit? Do you wanna to run towards something that has never satisfied and will never satisfy? Is that what you wanna to run toward? If that's what you wanna to run towards, and believe me, I know that you do, don't. Think to yourself, If that ain't God, I don't need to run toward it. If whatever it is that you're running towards ain't Christ, then don't run towards it. You read your Bible, you pray, you talk to your pastor, you get with your small group, you tell them what you're afraid of, you be open, you be honest, you say, this is what I'm afraid of, help me run toward God. Because you're in control of your emotions. Children are a blessing. I have that written down in this note. Uh, children are a blessing, which is so ironic today, because I made like 14 of them cry. Um, But they're such a joy. And I love the way that our church is growing by young families. If you're a young family here, and if your child is crying, listen, we love you. We want you to be here. We want the kid here, too. The child. They're such a blessing, because they bring, and everybody has sort of like a different stage that they love, right? For some, it's the little tiny, tiny ones, you know, that you wrap up in the little burrito, and you hold them, and and they smell so good most of the time. And they, they're so fun and cute. I like the stage where they're like old enough to talk and wrestle, but you can't break them, right? They're still, they're still kind of, you can throw them and the moms are less scared. It's my favorite. Because they say things, they, they emote, there's so much excitement. It reminded me of, um, thinking about this, reminded me of uh, some of our best friends that live back home, the Hallecks. And they adopted two girls. And the youngest one was named Maya. And Maya and us, all of us, of course, her parents included, we went to Chili's one night. And we're at Chili's and I took the straw paper and I put it on the, the, the table there. And then I took the straw and I would cover it up and I would blow the paper to where it would kind of scooch across the table at her, right? Just this piece of paper. And she's sitting there in a little high chair. She's got a little puff hair going on. And she's looking at this thing and it would scooch across the table just a little bit and she'd go, ooh, every time. And we'd never seen her do that before. So I did it over and over and over and over again. And so we would scooch that little piece of paper, and and then we would all laugh and she'd get afraid. And then she'd look at all of us and start laughing. Like, I don't know why you're all laughing. The thing is moving on its own. There's literal poltergeist going on right here. And you fools are laughing. And then we would do it again and she'd get responsive. And then we would laugh. There was just this this part about that age. There's this thing about this age. I love that age. I love it in our church. I love that our staff are having babies. I love that. I love that we're bringing babies. This is a good time to tell y'all to to participate in kids' ministry and to go back there and volunteer in the kids' ministry. One day we're gonna baptize some kid and you're gonna watch that child who's accepted Jesus and making a public stand and you're gonna know that you were a part of that. So volunteer in the kids' ministry. There's this thing about them that is so emotional. When they're scared, you hear it. When they're upset, and they want something, they want to eat, they want me to stop, they will let you know. They they just express that. But here's the thing. As parents, we guide them through that. We help them see when it's the right time to do these things and when it's the wrong time to do these things. That you can't just get angry and throw all the stuff. You can't do that. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. Your emotions are like a toddler. They're wonderful. They're expressive. They're beautiful and you ought to meet them where they are. When you feel amazement, then you sing. When you're happy, you laugh. When when you feel gratitude to somebody else, you say it. You go out of your way to let them know how much you appreciate them. But what I'm telling you is when you're afraid or when you're angry, don't follow the toddler. Guide the toddler and say, look, it's good to be afraid, Josh. We gotta lean toward God we got to stay with God and don't be afraid of the monsters. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.